0: Good day and welcome to The Bipolar Feminist. I am Nikita Ramkisun and today I am joined by U.S. horror writer Vaughn A. Jackson, who is the author of Up From the Deep and Touched by Shadows. He is currently working on an anthology of cosmic horror by marginalized people called Beyond the Bounds of Infinity to be published by Raw Dog Screaming Press. With the aim of garnering more diversity in publishing, the project aims to provide an opportunity for diverse editors and authors to showcase their work. Welcome, and uh, yeah. I'm really appreciative to have you. Yeah, um, thank you for having me. I saw the uh, Beyond the Bounds of Infinity Kickstarter mm-hmm. and was absolutely inspired. H- having been a reader of Cosmic Horror from the time I was little, I mean, my dad left his um, bookshelf quite unguarded, <laughs> and let me read whatever I wanted to read, and so I got into Lovecraft a little too early. Yeah. To to which um, a lot of my friends say, "Oh, that explains a lot." How did you get into horror?
1: Um. So my dad actually was um. He was one of the big people pushing me to read a lot of different things. So I remember him getting me first into kind of like. Horror movies, you know Stephen King's *The Shining* stuff like that. But also, uh, he really wanted me to read a lot of the Stephen King books that he liked. Um, so I got a lot of *The Dark Tower* and mm-hmm. um, what was the other one? Oh, *Eye of the Dragon*, which is more fantasy than horror, but still kind of has those yeah. elements. Again, maybe a little bit before I was like fully ready to read like some of the stuff that I read, but I I ended up really enjoying it. And I sort of I sort of moved away from horror for like fantasy and science fiction and. Only in the more recent years, have i actually really circled back to really being as into horror as I am. Mm. Um, but I also, I in that time, when I was reading Stephen King, and so I did find Lovecraft, and I enjoyed, you know, the idea of these alien monsters and yeah. stuff like that. I didn't really uh, pick up on all of the less than subtle undertones there when I was first reading them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult too, as a as a kid reading it, or yes, even as a, as a young teen. And following on from that, getting into horror, how did you get into fantasy?
1: That was um the Hobbit, actually. I know that's mm-hmm. a very common answer for most people, but I remember um one of my parents would read me from The Hobbit and then I, you know, I picked it up later on when I was growing up and I could read it myself. That was sort of my gateway into fantasy. Uh, I moved from there, you know, I end up would watch all the Lord of the Rings movies. And so mm-hmm. now I was at the bookstore finding every fantasy novel I could find, trying to uh, you know Conan, Elric of Malnivany, whatever popped up when I was looking at you know used bookstores. So, yeah,
0: my introduction into fantasy was a combination of The Hobbit and Terry Pratchett.
1: Okay, yeah, that's cool. I I so I didn't get to teach Pratchett later on until later on. I did get um, into Neil Gaiman though, which sort of yeah brought me into that weird dark subcategory between mm. fantasy and horror that uh, is what inspired me to start writing, actually, was the first Neil Gaiman book I read.
0: (laughs) That was my next question. What was the book that...
1: Oh, uh, it was Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman.
0: So good. Just a darkly beautiful Alice in
1: Wonderland in London Underground. Yeah. I want to do this. I want to make magic like this.
0: Mm. And it really is about making magic. And what I find is... That Lovecraftian horror, I mean, it's so steeped in this fantastical imagination. But as you said, it's really hard to pick up on those subtle cues until much later on in life. And it's so steeped in racism as well. Right. So how does writing cosmic horror and horror in general, from a marginalized perspective, how do you think it may change the tropes and the conventions or the norms within the genre?
1: I think... And this is one of the things I kind of talk about with people when I am having these kind of discussions, is I think it changes what the definition of dread really is. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft's fear and what he wrote about was very often the quote unquote normal person walking into a weird situation and experiencing that other. Yeah. And in a weird way, because of that, they become the outside have this fear of the Mm. the normal, quote unquote, becoming the the marginalized effectively. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whereas I think for myself and a lot of other marginalized horror writers, we write from the opposite perspective where we are already on the outside and trying to fit into what is quote unquote normal Mm. is is the dread. That's what is terrifying for us. Uh, A Mm -hmm. system that was not made for us, that we're trying to shove ourselves into so we can survive and, you know, to varying degrees of success.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I get that. And uh, you said something that uh, that makes me think of current U.S. politics right now, not just politics, but socioeconomics, politics, all of it, is the fear of the normal becoming the outsider. And that is exactly what is happening with um, with white supremacy in the U.S. right now. So how does that relate?
1: So, yeah, it's, uh, it's wild to see kind of, you know, and, it's one of those things where you can look at it and you can say, Oh, like this is the death throes, kind of like the death throes of white supremacy. But I don't believe that as a concept, it will ever actually fully be gone. Mm. But it is interesting to watch their fear. I mean, you know, you, you have people who say, like, you use words like homophobia, Islamophobia, and we use them to not really mean a fear in the context that we use them. But at their core, they are. They're afraid mm. that they will be treated the way they've treated. Yeah. And so because this, I mean this we've made a lot of progress, and a lot of change, even in the past couple of years, and we took some steps back here and there, but we have been moving progressively forward. And I think they're realizing that this this old ideology that kept them on top is slowly fading and they're they're reacting to that and we're seeing that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's scary for us, too, because they're more unpredictable now. You don't know exactly how they're going to respond when, you know, you, if you, pardon the metaphor, but if, you, if you corner an animal, you don't know how they're going to react if they're frightened like that. Mm. But we're seeing this this backlash towards progress and there's this mounting fear on both sides. They're afraid of being replaced and we're afraid because they're coming out of the woodworks and really trying to, like, you know, drive us back to where they want us to be. Yeah,
0: yeah. And changing the narrative. Yeah, and we know that you know history has been so whitewashed over centuries. They're trying to desperately cling to that whitewash narrative, even though there are more books out there than we can even count on our hands, our fingers, and toes. And that's what uh, they're to... sort of trying
1: to, sort of trying to ban the books. I mean, you know, yeah. if you limit the access to the information, then you can thread They can keep up that this uh this post Civil War narrative that the Confederates were, you know just trying to fight for their rights and you know we weren't they weren't the bad guys they were made out to be the bad guys because abe lincoln wanted to give the the war a cause they want to keep pushing this narrative that kind of did take a hold for a long time in sort of the south's whole reconstruction plan yeah they had to garner sympathy because they otherwise they were done they were shot they had blown their entire socioeconomic standing on a war that they lost and yeah. so they had to propel this narrative of like no we were like the underdogs we were the oppressed we were trying to fight for our rights and and you know you just yeah with them banning books and you know the stuff going on in Florida with the, the Prager U and the critical yeah. race theory they're just trying again to once more solidify that daughters and sons of the confederacy narrative mm-hmm. That's been being propagated for so long.
0: And so writing in fiction, in terms of fiction, rewriting the narrative of marginalized people, how do you think that will add to the larger narrative of the socio-political sphere?
1: So fiction itself is a safe way to explore dangerous ideas. So when you write a story from a marginalized perspective, even if that story is fiction, there are always going to be elements of truth to it. Mm -hmm. And people, I think, in general, find it easier to empathize with fiction. And when you make them empathize with characters that are marginalized, it actually does extend to the real world where now they're empathizing with these marginalized communities in general because they've experienced it in a way that, while it maybe wasn't written for them, and they might not fully understand it, they can actually see, they can kind of peer into those people's lives a little bit. Mm. I I think that having more diverse stories like this, if we can get more of those out there and get more people to read them, there will be a greater understanding of kind of where everyone is coming from.
0: And it's very easy to latch onto a single story, a series of stories. Like my favorite book series of all time is still his Dark Materials by Fuller Pullman. Mm-hmm. Absolutely brilliant series. Gorgeous writing. And the characters will stay with me for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah. And so, I I gonna, yeah, I thought I was going to have a series like that.
0: Oh, it's so stunning. But like a single author can stay with you as well. Cause cool. I know Pratchett is one of my all time favorites. In fact, I have an entire shelf just dedicated oh. to Pratchett. Yeah.
1: Uh, that, that's the entire Discworld series right there. So. Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah. True. And funnily enough, the first one I read was not a Discworld novel. It was uh, one called Only You Can Save Mankind, If Not You, Who Else? Okay. That's a tiny little book, and I read it in a day.
1: (laughs) And stuck with you ever since.
0: Yeah. I mean, his writing really did. And he would be considered horror if it wasn't for the humor.
1: Yes. You look at him, or even someone like, you know, similar kind of vein, but like Douglas Adams, who wrote Mm. a series about the world being destroyed in the most hilarious way possible. If
0: you remove all the humor from it, it's terrifying. It is. (laughs) I actually need to reread it with that kind of lens though, (laughs) because this is my first foray into writing horror. And so I'm going back and looking at all the horror stories that inspired me. And as I said earlier, I've been reading Lovecraft since I was like seven years old. So can you tell me about the tagline of the project? And- how you have come to view Lovecraft in particular, especially as being one of the founding or the major influences on Cosmic Horror.
1: So the the Make Lovecraft rollover in his grave uh, was sort of a tongue-in-cheek line initially.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I was
1: on a panel about the evolution of cosmic horror uh, at StokerCon this year, and we were talking about sort of how we can, sort of, like this conversation, how we can kind of relate what Lovecraft stood for with our love of the genre. And Mm. my response was basically, I want all of my characters in Cosmic Horror to always fight back. I don't want them to fall over in gibbering madness like Lovecraft's characters. Mm -hmm. And always write my stories in a way that would make Lovecraft roll over in his grave. Uh, Which received a fair amount of applause and cheers from the audience. And again, like I said, it was entirely tongue-in-cheek me just trying to be, you know, trying to e-tension of what could potentially be a difficult subject to talk about and so i i kind of got that and i had already been thinking about doing an idea of like a, an anthology of cosmic horror from the perspective of marginalized persons and when that got that response i was like well you know there we go we have a tagline we have like a selling point that we can put on the front of it like you know make Lovecraft roll over in his grave and so we kind of ran with it and I, that was our initial push and you know with when the kickstarter got about halfway through we kind of shifted our focus and brought it to like reclaiming cosmic horror so yes yeah, so that's that is where the uh that's where the tagline comes from as far as my opinion on lovecraft right now i like i said i am a huge fan of giant monsters and strange creatures and all of that all the the creative aspects of the things that he came up with even though most of it is shrouded and i can't describe it oh god it's terrible when you kind of piece together the little bits of images that he gives you of these monsters, I do love that design. Lovecraft's stories on their own in like retrospect, going back and reading them, they are not always that great. They still have a special place in my heart, but they're not really good. And it's this weird Mm -hmm. thing because at the time that they were written, that would have been like sensibilities and the <laughs> of the people at the time that would have worked for them, you know, it was It's very like, oh, like I can't describe the terror, and everyone's like, oh God, you can't describe it; it's so terrible. I'm clutching my pearls. But now it's like readers. Now we we want the script. We want to know what the monster looks like as much as we can, yeah. we also still don't want too much. So mm-hmm. I think that Lovecraft's place is for the acknowledgement of he sort of brought a. Name and a face to a genre that didn't really have a clear focus on what it was—a clear title, if you
0: will—and
1: mm. um, I do think that people should read Lovecraft with the perspective of knowing what what he stood for and how that influenced his writings. But at the end of the day, he is by and large not the end-all, be-all of cosmic horror, yes. and there are people even in his like, general time area, who kind of did it better than he did in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, even so, so much you... as you look at people like Robert E. Howard, who has his own problematic stuff, mm-hmm. but he did a lot of a similar vibe in some of his like, darker Conan stories or in his Solomon Kane stories, mm-hmm. where he did Cosmic Horror in ways that are kind of better than how Lovecraft did it, because he wasn't afraid to go into what's being seen and done. It wasn't just always hidden behind this veil.
0: Yeah. And I think in naming the genre, like bringing Eldritch Horror into the forefront of of fiction as a legitimate genre, I think Beyond the Bounds of Infinity is such an important project and seeking to center marginalized voices. So can you tell me more about the project? And you told me what inspired it, but the project itself. Well,
1: the project itself, I mean, it's... It's kind of what's on the label. It is an anthology. We're looking to have about sixteen stories in total, with a distinctly marginalized cast of writers. We are casting a very wide net for marginalization because we don't want to exclude. Because Lovecraft hated everybody, and so yeah. our goal is to try and get as many different kinds of people in there. So you know, we opened it up to people who are neurodivergent or people who are people who are BIPOC people who are. LGBTQA+. plus like we wanted to give anyone who could have had a place in the genre if it weren't for the gatekeeping of love of like you know the lovecraft fanboys basically yeah we um and so I mean we're, we're taking submissions I'm, I'm I'm actually currently in the process of going through the ones that we have right now we've gotten mm-hmm quite a few, and they've only been open for a few days, so I'm trying to make sure I stay on top of them so I don't get flooded. And, I mean, there are great stories from people who I don't think their voices would have necessarily gotten heard or gotten heard as soon, potentially, without projects like these. I mean, Mm. people, if if they are a great writer, eventually they will get picked up, hopefully. But, I mean, I really want to go through, I'm I'm trying to go through and find these voices that might not be as prevalent that might not have a chance at a market where a market that's dominated by like, oh, we're looking for these cosmic horror stories, but they're taking all these uh, old white guys or people who are basically writing glorified Lovecraft pastiches as yeah. opposed to, you know, shaping the genre and evolving it over time as it moves forward.
0: And it's really hard to get rid of those old tropes, you know. it's uh, It's so easy to fall back on them. And I know that as a writer, I sometimes do it as well. But you seem to make a conscious effort to include marginalized voices and marginalized characters, and especially people from the African diaspora. So can you tell me about the why and how?
1: So it's one of those things that when I was writing my first couple of books, and these are books that, you know, never really, they're on the shelf, they're not going to get put anywhere. They're like kind of like me getting back in the swing of writing. I was really trying to emulate, you know, the writers that I loved. But I was finding that I wasn't connecting with my characters as I wrote them. Hmm. Because again, I'm, you know, I'm writing these like epic fantasy stories with the uh, blonde-haired, you know, six-foot-tall white knight, quite literally. And it's just yeah. it doesn't feel right. There's this, there's this optimism that these characters have. There's this vibe they have that doesn't sort of fit with where I find myself in the world a lot of the times. Hmm. So The conscious effort to include these diverse characters comes from a need on my part to connect with my characters, but also through the lens of, okay, if I can't connect with this character because I don't see myself in them in a lot of ways, or it's harder for me to connect with them, other people might have that same problem. And so I want people to feel that they can connect Mm -hmm. with at least one character in my story, usually. That's kind Mm -hmm. of my goal. So even if it's not the main character, if they like, you know, if they're just reading like, oh, like this side character, I really feel them. And if that's like what gives them like the, the, uh, the representation that they're looking for when they're trying to find new science fiction or horror or fantasy to read, I want people, I don't want people to be turned off from these genres because they can't see themselves in it.
0: Yeah. And representation really matters because yeah. I was that one brown kid and I don't know if you were as well, but that one brown kid who was always the token in my D&D group when I was 12 years old, the one getting questioned, like, what does a little brown girl know about Dungeons and Dragons, you know? So
1: for, and uh, I, went, I went to a predominantly uh, white Christian high school. Mm. Uh, and I was not the only uh, brown guy, but I was not, there were not many, many of us. Um, mm. You know, you heap on top of that, you know, I like, I wasn't into sports. I was big into like, you know, anime and fantasy, horror, stuff like that. And you kind of have this place where, and it's changing now. There's actually like a wider space for people who have these, these quote unquote geeky interests, and it's becoming more mainstream. It's its own set of good and bad, honestly. But even when I first started high school, it was still like a little, like you're still kind of on the cusp of like, this is sort of weird that you like watch anime. Isn't that just cartoons for kids? Stuff mm. like this. I I do get like the not so much being the only one but sort of being the I don't quite fit into this group of people.
0: Yeah. Oh no, it especially for the nerds it's uh, really easy to be on the outskirts and look in but it's also easy as a brown person to be on the outskirts of even nerd culture.
1: Yes, yep. Oh yeah. Cuz so again you have you have these people who are gatekeeping the uh the, the literally the Pearly Gates, if you will, you know. It's, mm-hmm. If it's not if it's not Tolkien or Lovecraft or and I mean even people who the people who you know they misconstrue Terry Pratchett like oh well Terry Pratchett like you know he and he's like no everything that he wrote stands for the opposite of what you're doing right now. But okay, yeah. like fuck have it your way. Or you know you go to your local gaming store for Friday night magic and it's just a bunch of thirty five year old white dudes and they're all looking at you like why are you even here like yeah and, you see, you just yeah it is very easy even in nerd cultures to yeah to be the odd person out because of your skin color
0: yeah and gender plays a role in it as well because in the late 90s I would go into comic book stores and not get served like yeah. everybody working there would just look at me like what are you doing here you don't belong here
1: yeah I yeah I mean I and I I can only witness that from the outside, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, as a man. But it's one of those things where you see it, and you're, for me at least, it it infuriates me, yeah. because, in my case, and I know in a lot of people's cases, these things, these this fantasy and you know comic books, Magic the Gathering, you all that stuff was an escape from a place that we felt treated us unfairly because of our interests. Yeah. So, we used it as our sort of our safe haven. And now we're barring it from new people who want to come in for whatever I Don't get it. it. They're, they're a girl or they're too old or, you know, they don't read the exact same comics as we'd like. You no, know, why do you read Marvel instead of DC or you don't like Batman? Like, just ridiculous stuff. Mm-hmm. Just finding ways to draw these dividing lines. And I do think, again, it comes back to this idea that these people are afraid. They're afraid that if they let women into the comic book space they're going to lose their ultra masculine brooding like you know borderline barbarian superheroes and like yeah you can't hate people for their fears but it's so hard to like because they don't they don't they don't get it or they refuse to get it
0: and so it doesn't come from a logical place
1: right and so you're watching them and you're just like you like if there had been people doing this to you when you came here, like, like that you, that you, you want them to like experience that. You want them to feel that. You want them to know what that feels like, but they don't, because they don't think about
0: it. Yeah. And they'll never know that level of marginalization. And this isn't the oppression Olympics, but when you have different levels of, or different intersections of oppression mixed with levels of uh, privilege and different intersections of privilege, it is really a privilege to get into comic books, to get into D&D, to get into any sort of nerdscape.
1: It's expensive. It's expensive as hell. It's inaccessible yeah. to a
0: lot of people. And a lot of the times that inaccessibility is driven along class and racial lines. Mm-hmm. And um, I know in South Africa, it's. You will be hard pressed to find a black geek who is completely fully immersed in it because they have to save up to go to college, you know. Right. It's
1: one of the things like you, you say that. And like I think about it, and it's like, yeah, that makes absolute sense. But it's not something that even I, like, would like think about. On like, you know, it's something that pops into my head. And so you said that and I was like, oh, like, like I didn't, I didn't consider that. And I'm here trying to talk, like, you know, talking about all this sort of this trying to be inclusive finance. Something that didn't even pop into my head. So it just mm-hmm. kind of just sort of struck me.
0: And being from the global south, it's a, it's something that I constantly tell my comrades over in the in the states. It's wild, like <laughs> the fact that we just do everything through humor it's uh it's something that like how how do we actually survive every day because it's a reality that not many people understand yeah. especially being from a colonized country in the global south that is still struggling with all of these uh, issues stemming from from global colonization and uh, a book that i'm currently reading and uh, this is absolutely fantastic it's not fantasy it's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney. Okay, I would awesome. suggest every single person who is anti-colonial read it. Okay.
1: that Yeah, I mean, that's, an inter- that's a very interesting take because you always hear the argument that like, oh, like, without the colonists, without the colonizers, they would have be- still been ages behind. So seeing it from a different perspective, yeah, I'll check that out.
0: Yeah, it's really good. And it debunks that myth entirely.
1: No, yeah, I'm yeah. sure. I mean even just like the, the little bits of research here now that I've done, just like, oh, like, no, they weren't just, they didn't just have sticks and stones, but they want you to believe. They were, they were, mm. they were, they were on their stuff. They were, they were doing it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and the stories that have come out of African and even my heritage of Indian culture, mm-hmm. the fantastical stories that I learned growing up, a lot of it is rooted in the same kind of tropes. Just in different spaces and in and told in different ways, and it's through oral history, yeah. and how do you envision this kind of globalized oral history coming into the fore as adding to the genre of horror? Oh God <laughs> <laughs> um put you on the spot there,
1: I think that a lot of times oral history gets sort of relegated to the land of folktale and mythology and is not treated as seriously, even sometimes compared to fiction. And I think part of that is because the way that we are taught a lot of this stuff is as if it is just like, you know, folktales, you know, you hear tales of Nancy the spider or, you know, coyote who, you know, coyote from the native American mythology. And we don't get any of the context behind it. We don't understand where it comes from. I think that if we can have people from different communities, from these communities, bring their perspectives more to the forefront and gain that collective context, I think Mm -hmm. we'd have a more understanding society. And I think that we would start to respect stories in general more. We have a culture, I think, that very much focuses on a consumer-oriented idea, sort of this idea of of like authors producing content and not art. Mm, Content and not art. And I think it's been a shift that has not been helped, that has not been helped by things like, you know, and I don't want to like slam on these things, but I think they are good in their own ways. like TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, this idea of just generating content on a schedule, you know, you have to work with, make make sure the algorithm works for you, you know, Mm. post at this time or this many posts a day or... You know, you'd have this many followers to make money. And I think that if we can go back or maintain this idea of stories as art and stories as direction in a weird way. Mm. Direction, because stories themselves, oral stories in particular, and written stories too, but they were usually to impart a lesson of some. I mean, the the clearest example you have is, the old German fairy tales, where it was basically your parents were going to eat you yeah. um, and we even we took that we literally took the teeth out of those you know we have Red Riding Hood survive the Hansel and Gretel don't get eaten by the witch because yeah. you had to clean them up and make them presentable for children but children back then were listening to them just <laughs> fine and <laughs> and to a degree that they knew that these things weren't true but the 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 implication was that the point was there, like, you know, like, yes, you may not get eaten, you probably aren't gonna get eaten by a, a witch in a candy house, but you know, maybe you probably should listen to your parents. They generally, generally speaking, know what they're talking about. Like, you know, like, yeah. um so I, I do like, think that the idea of like a global understanding of stories and where they come from would greatly benefit everyone involved.
0: I'm reading Roald Dahl's revolting rhymes to my eight-year-old nephews at the moment, okay. and one of them said, I like these endings better.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. because they, they make more sense. I mean, yeah, you, you color, yeah, like, okay, so Red Riding Hood, Red Riding Hood, and Grandma get eaten by the wolf, and the huntsman cuts them open with an axe and saves them? That's so the the when the, the I heard. Is- didn't didn't chew? Didn't like? I like what, what's happening here? Is this, is like, I don't. <laughs> and even like, even as a kid, i remember thinking like that's that's a little that's a little strange, you know? That's uh, how yeah. did that work? Because right? I, I chew my food, <laughs> otherwise <laughs> I choke on things. But yeah, I mean, and I think people think that kids are weaker than they are. Yeah, kids yeah. are horrifyingly resilient, honestly, and I, I think that. Obviously, there are topics that are going to be difficult to explain to kids when they're too young. But I think that, I mean, fear is the oldest emotion in that humans have. Like we have always experienced fear; it's uh, mm-hmm. a probable urge. And so, I think that trying to keep kids away from fear in its entirely only does them a disservice. I yeah. think it is more important. I think that what parents should focus on doing, uh, and this is me speaking out of effectively my ass, I don't have kids, but let kids be afraid, but show them that you're there for them.
0: Yeah, I if like that. Nothing,
1: it's not that there's nothing to be afraid of. It's that fear can be overcome and you are not alone in dealing with fear and you're not alone in confronting your fear. Yeah. That's what kids need more than like, all right, yeah, don't don't be scared. Like, there's are to be scared of, because there are things to be scared of, especially if you are a like, child in a marginalized group. There's a mm-hmm. hell of a lot to be scared of.
0: Like, um, when did you get the talk that police are not yeah, your like, friend?
1: Yeah, and I, I got it, I think, probably later than a lot of people did. And I, I don't know if that was better or worse for me in particular, if that awareness had come earlier when I've behaved differently.
0: But yeah, like, you know,
1: every marginalized person has some variation of the talk that's like yeah okay so the world isn't really made for you mm. yeah. and you're gonna have to deal with that yeah. and that's that's terrifying because you is. grow up expecting and wanting everything to be fair and you realize that yeah no you're 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 just out of luck on that one like it's not going yeah be fair. you're, gonna have to you're almost two- on your own yeah like and so i think that the important thing is to impress
0: that like They are not alone in Mm -hmm. that struggle. Yeah. I think that's really important. If an elder god kills you, they're not really worried about your race or gender. Correct. So with that thought in mind, how do you see writing marginalization into the genre or normalizing marginalization in the genre? How could it create a safe space for people who grew up as kids like us, reading fantasy, horror, and all of these things that were kept from us
1: that's that's an interesting question because yeah like you said like the elder gods don't care about you at all yeah and i think the answer there lies in the fact that we almost like we want people to not really care about our differences we want people like we like we want them to acknowledge them but it shouldn't be a separate us. you know we don't want people look at us and say oh there goes a black person. You know, we want people to say, oh, like there's a, there's a person and they, they happen they happen to be black. And there are people who put more or less, I think, importance on their their identity in that regard. And so that might change from person to person. Mm-hmm. But I think this idea of being not so much judged, but being held in the same degree of appreciation as everything else, even if that is so much as, like, yeah, you are just all basically ants to me. This idea of being held to this equal standard as everyone else and like fitting into it, I think is in a weird way almost appealing to, pe- to our people, or at least in my particular, uh, this idea that, you know, there's no real cruelty in their indifference. Mm. They don't want to hurt us or, you know, eradicate us because of. Who we are. It is simply just. Cthulhu wakes up and everything ends because everything ends. Like there's no, yeah. there's no agenda behind the the elder gods. Well, unless you're Narl who is always scheming. But overall, <laughs> yeah. there's uh there's very little uh, agenda behind the great old ones or the elder gods the outer gods and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. The idea of, uh, and I don't know if you've read uh, Victor Laval's The Ballad of Black Tom. I haven't. Uh, Okay, heavily suggested that it is the, in my opinion, one of the perfect subversions of what Lovecraft was going for, and it is in fact a a retelling of one of Lovecraft's stories from the perspective of a Black man uh, in the time period. But the thing that really kind of was driven home for me in this story is that the The main character, the the black man, the Eldritch horrors, the cosmic terror, was frightening for him, but it was preferable to the real world racial and prejudice horrors that he was dealing with in his daily life. And I think that's kind of one of the interesting things. And where I write in this is that there's a there is a monster in my stories. There's there's always a monster in my stories, but mm-hmm. the monster doesn't care but there's also a human monster a human monster who does care and they have that and they often end up being the more terrifying character
0: yeah because they hate
1: and hatred is terrifying
0: it is and this is something that i tell my mom Whenever she sees me reading horror or watching a horror movie or anything like that, she's like, "Why do you do that to yourself?" Like, real life is far more terrifying.
1: Yep. It's the uh, the modern, more horrible version, a horrible version of reality—a of stranger and fiction, you know. Yeah, infinitely more terrible than anything a horror author could come up with.
0: Yeah. Oh, no, it really is. But how do you see that inclusion of marginalization playing out in the future?
1: I think that as more and more people begin to push their way past these gatekeepers, I do think that we will start to see a lot more marginalized voices in genres where we haven't been seeing them as much. Uh, I Mm. think one of the big stopgaps here is the bigger publishing houses. who only want to publish what they know is going to sell. Yeah. Um, On one hand, from a perspective of like, Marketing and capitalism, you you understand that idea, but the problem comes that if you aren't willing to take a risk, you're never going to move beyond stagnation, and yeah. they're all afraid to take these risks and publish these people who these no name people who have fantastic stories, just waiting to get out there. But they're like, mm, I I can't guarantee that this is going to sell as much as the next Stephen King book. So, I do think that uh, like small presses, indie presses, and stuff like that, we are seeing more of these voices get out there and Mm -hmm. i think that i think that the future of marginalized voices in publishing lay a lot with these smaller presses Mm -hmm. i think they're going to be the ones who are carrying out a lot of that work and i think that when the bigger companies see that and they see the response to that i think over time they will start to to change their tune yeah Uh, of course everything takes time everything you know Changes either slow or cataclysmic. So, I, I don't foresee <laughs> it being yeah. um, an about face, but I do think that as if they start paying attention more to these smaller presses and seeing what they're publishing and how they are, you know, even without all the money back behind them that these big companies have, they seem like how much their support and interest are drumming up in these marginalized voices. I do think the tune will start to show.
0: I think that's why projects like this are so important and it really is time that uh, larger presses got the memo. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Because I read a stat recently that said over 70% of book sales by Black authors go up when a Black person is killed by police in the US.
1: Yep, yeah. Uh, Yeah, uh, there's a weird sort of guilt gut reaction, you know, someone, one of us gets killed and everyone's like, and, you know, they, they see all the, the posts about how this has been historically happening and they want to go and, you know, they say they want to educate themselves or they're just curious or they, they feel bad or, you know, like, oh, this is me giving. And on one hand, if you look at the statistics for a lot of similar things like that, a lot of times there are like things, things happen, you know? history books go mm. on sale when historic events happen, you know, when a new president was elected, old presidential bios get bought more like, but it is kind of darkly horrifying because it, it does feel like there's this morbid, like, Oh, another one, another one of them died. We need to like, you know, like, what's, what's all this about? And it, it's, it's a weird thing to separate yourself from that statistic, but um, yeah. It's I, a tough one. You know, Oh man, I think that people will always have a fascination with the morbid and part of the reason that a lot of modern like news cycles work so well is they focus on the sensationalization and the horrifying of their audiences basically. They come up with like Mm. the most terrifying way they can phrase some innocuous thing to get people to keep watching. I think that even if we had a greater plethora of marginalized authors you would still see statistics like that i don't inherently think that those statistics are a bad thing uh because even if there's a morbid a morbidity behind it there are still people who are going to go in and you know buy all those books and they're going to come out the other side more enlightened than they were when they went in yeah. uh, and so i mean it's the, the old thing of, you know, there's always a silver lining and that sounds terrible, but I don't want to fault people who use things as opportunities or justifications to educate themselves. Mm. Um, so that's a, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very difficult thing to sort of come to terms with, because you want to be angry. Yes. Like, oh yeah, you care, you care about us now that one of us is dead but at the same time, some people uh, some people don't keep up the news as much. They're not as aware of things that are going on. They don't have access to these things, or they're only hearing it from this one angry source that's trying to make it this world-ending catastrophe. And you know, they see like a post on Facebook, or they talk to one of their friends, and they have this like, oh, like there's a there's a different side to this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I mean, yeah, I don't I don't want to fault anyone's learning moment, but yeah, that that is a hard statistic to to deal with.
0: It is, and the cynical journalist in me immediately goes to, "Oh, they're just buying Tony Morrison to have Tony Morrison on their bookshelf." Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's a percentage I, of that. I
1: I waffle dangerously between wanting to be really optimistic about the human race and being a downright cynic about the human race. Mm. Um, so, yes, I mean, I'm sure there are people who want to, you know, they go and buy, you know, Oprah's biography and Toni Morrison and, you know, the new essay Cosby because like, you know, all well, the, the Black writers are in fashion now and like, you know, I got to get my whatever. But I, I do want to believe that there are a a healthy and reasonable amount of people who also just want to learn and experience mm. and expand their horizons.
0: Speaking of expanding horizons, I read Up From The Deep. Oh, and I, I
1: hope you liked it. <laughs> it I
0: did. I really did. And I recently bought um, your second book, Touched by Shadows.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I noticed subtle, like anti capitalist um, <laughs> little things here and there. Okay. Um, especially the part where somebody tells uh, someone to pay the welders decently. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh. <laughs> Is all of that on purpose?
1: So the <laughs> the line in particular about the welders in the book was uh, actually a reference to Ross, to my friend mm, Ross. Uh,
0: I realized.
1: <laughs> I we had been ha- we had had conversations about you know difficulty finding him difficulty finding welding jobs that um you know paid to his skill level, and so I just like you know I was writing that scene and I was like oh I have welders and I I kind of put that in there. I don't so much think that they are on purpose I think that subconsciously I have a understanding and a belief of how the world should, or how I would want the world to operate how the world I think should operate I think that comes mm. through and I think that clearly part of that is a rejection of a lot of capitalist ideals and doctrine mm. uh, I don't really I don't uh, claim to have any kind of answer or purport to uh, give any solutions but I do see how much the current systems don't work or how they do work in a way that does not help the less fortunate uh, in the world. So I I don't ever set out to write anything anti-capitalist. I think that just my morals and my ethics and my, my beliefs on how people should be treated
0: probably don't always line up with capitalist rhetoric. Now, you know that this question has to come. Okay. How do you think Jordan Peele is contributing to the marginalized narrative?
1: I think, I think this is, I think this is a twofold answer, actually. Mm -hmm. I think on the side of, for the marginalized groups, Jordan Peele is showing that not only can we do this, do it well and succeed with it, but that our stories matter in the, in this context, in the context of horror and science fiction, our stories matter and they can resonate.
0: Mm. I
1: think that's but I also think on the other side for the the more majority groups, the uh, you know, the, the white people, um, going <laughs> a that yes, like these stories can be good. These stories exist and they can be just as good as you know, your Quentin Tarantino or your Stanley Kubrick done movies. I think that he opened a lot of people's eyes to how horror can explore different groups stories and i think that he is also he's giving us movies where the black person doesn't die first which is really great in my opinion and Mm. he's giving us stories that show us that black people can be we can be the heroes we can be villains like we can be all these different things
0: without being black
1: first right Without, and without being relegated to stereotypes. You know, we're not the funny gangster who gets roped in with the main gang and is kind of 100% problematic the entire time. You know, we're not the uh, the angry Black man villain who wants to ruin the happy white family's life. We are heroes and villains and side characters with a core and with motivation and with distinct... With, with, we're, we're people. He's, he's portraying... Black people in these stories as real fleshed out people. Yeah. And I think that is honestly the most important thing that any writer can do, but particularly when you're trying to embody marginalized characters, you have to write them as people. You can't write people as stereotypes.
0: You can't. The story that I'm writing at the moment is about an Indian woman from South Africa, a photographer mm-hmm. who goes missing in the Arctic tundra. Okay. Okay. And this comes from two and a half years of living in Sweden. (laughs) And so, yeah, drawing on the reality rather than tropes is just so much more fulfilling as a writer. And you find that in
1: a lot of ways it's it's easier, isn't it? Mm
0: -hmm. It is.
1: Because once you've written a character as a stereotype, they have to always be that stereotype, even if it doesn't fit in the story. Yeah. And if a person is a real person, their reaction... Even if it doesn't necessarily fit in the story, and it fits for their character, the readers will they'll hold on to that. Like okay, like mm. this is what that person that person would do in this situation. You know, as mm. opposed to oh yeah, that fits their character. Like you know, it's, it's a different a different way of thinking.
0: I think you've answered my my next question a little bit Um, in saying that people of color, especially Black people, are now moving away from being the cannon fodder and the tropes of the Black person dying first or the Mm -hmm. I'm not fucking with that shit. Um, Mm -hmm. So what is your hope, personally, for the representation of marginalization in not just horror, but in fantasy and sci-fi as a whole? I don't...
1: I want to stop hearing things like, oh you should read this book because it has a black protagonist or mm. like I want it to just be, this is a good story. Yeah. And I want it to not be this out of the world thing that we have a black protagonist or, you know, we have a black character in here. Who's not a drug dealer. They're like, you know, yeah they own a company. Huh? Like who would have thought, like, I want, I mean, I want it to be, I want us to be on equal ground on equal footing I want to be just I want to make just as much sense that a movie or a story or a play or a genre of music is written and performed by a black person as it would be a white person would be an Asian person I want I I want it I have to be careful as I say I want it to not matter but that is that's reductive and people's identities matter but I want it to not be shocking when you hear like, oh, they're a a metal band fronted by a black person. They are, it's a it's a superhero story with a black protagonist, or a, you know, a revenge tale with a black man avenging his his fallen friend, as opposed to like you know avenging his like his lost lover. I want it to just, I want stories to be told for the sake of their stories, and I want people's characters and ideas to matter in the context that they are meant to matter, and mm. not. As like a, a sticking or selling point, if that makes sense,
0: but <laughs> also writing our realities into it because I mean, like somebody telling, just say a black man in the U.S. call the cops, and him saying, "Well, no," yeah, just like, no. and that <laughs> I mean, should be yeah. just like something that we people recognize.
1: We don't, we don't call the cops. We don't do that. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I like. I guess that kind of falls into my like. I want people to see that. Well, I mean, first of all. I want the world to change. That's not uh, a thing anymore. I want, you know. Of course. Um, but <laughs> barring, as I said, you know, cataclysm or the slow progress of time, I want people to look at that and be like, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a um, thing.
1: That's a thing, yeah. I yeah. don't want them to be shocked or I don't want to, you know, I don't want to hear anyone talking about how, like, oh, they, you know, the the Black man wouldn't call the cops. I'm tired of this woke nonsense. I, I don't want any more. Uh, I, don't mm. want, I
0: don't
1: want any more of that either.
0: Actually, have a a poem. When they say a mermaid can't be black, ask them whether their ancestors would have jumped into the Atlantic, daring to believe they could breathe underwater just to be free.
1: I didn't expect me to be hurt today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. No, you're fine. That is, um, that is, yeah. I mean, just the the blending of horrific and almost. Like magical awe is always, I think, what makes a lot of stuff like that so upsetting. Mm. You
0: know,
1: like that is, yeah. I mean, short, sweet, to the point. Holy hell! (laughs) I
0: like. I wish I didn't have to write something like that, though.
1: Um, We we all do,
0: (laughs) but Um, it is impossible to depict a kind of a post-racial paradise in. Especially in in the genres which we write, but uh, how do you see that as playing out? Like, do you see it as being possible?
1: I don't necessarily know if I'm not even sure if post racial is necessarily what the goal we should be looking for. Because again, like race, people's race matters to this, and I think that when you start thinking about like post racial, you end up in the same issue of like, oh well I don't see color and oh I, I hate think, that um and it's like well first of all you, you do because you wouldn't say this to a person to look like you but also I want you to see my color I want my color to not negatively impact how I have to survive in this world mm-hmm. and it's a different I want you to see it I want you to see me as black I don't want my blackness to triple my chances of getting pulled over and shot by a cop yeah you know um so I don't I don't envision a post-racial society so much as I I envision a society that is tolerant of all things except intolerance. I like that. Um, and there's a um I am I'm full of quotes. I can never remember people who say the quotes because you know I can't be completely useful. But there's a quote that a tolerant society cannot tolerate intolerance because in doing so it becomes intolerant and it's a a mouthful of roundabout things but like yeah no like if people's existence is not truly causing harm what does it matter to the rest of us like why why are we trying to why are we trying to interfere in these people's lives I, I like who who you sleep with who you love who you pray to does not affect me you know yeah and if we get to the end of the world and some of us were right and some of us were wrong congrats some of us were right and some of us were wrong like yeah if all the right people you were right you know <laughs> shut the hell up and move on like you know shut the hell up and move on like you were yeah. right cool that that is that's that's your win that's your justification like you were right congrats the rest yeah. of us just want to live you know uh, and i think i think that's where i stand i i i think we are again slowly but surely trudging towards that and I think that as we get closer to that the pushback is going to get wilder Um, Mm. but I I do I do believe that what we are seeing is the quote unquote death throes of this opposition to progress. Mm. I think there will always be people who want to try and put things back to the way they were back to the good old days or whatever but I think that we can reach a point where they are a true minority. Yeah. They will have no place to stand in our culture.
0: Yeah. Because post-racial for me would be where race doesn't matter as to your opportunities and what you have access to. But I still love being of Indian descent and having well, all of these... I was telling somebody the other day that I love not having to explain to certain people, like my Marcy, which is my aunt came over and said this, this, and this, and them just rolling their eyes and saying, Marcy's, you know?
1: Right. Yeah. Like you, you want that, that sort of that cultural connection. Yeah. Right. So I guess in that case, we were operating on the same thought way, but uh different kind of understanding of what, uh, mm. what our phrase meant. So yeah, then, no, I get then, you. I am in agreement with that because I mean, yeah, like, you know, you I I, I relish when when I'm sitting in a room with a bunch of black people, if something happens, we all just kind of have that look and we're like mm. Mm. That, that shared like, you know, that almost like that cultural telepathy.
0: Yeah. I love uh, that. I that.
1: I think that's important to the preservation of cultures. Yes.
0: Especially um, cultures that were stolen and were were taken from us forcefully. Well,
1: right. And I was gonna say, like, you know, especially like I mean, modern black people in America we have our own, like, melting pot culture that we've had to blend from, you know, our roots way back in Africa and, like, the modernization of, like, where we are in America because Mm we got, yeah, we got got yanked away, and so, like, we have our culture, but it was, you know, quite literally beaten out of us, diluted, separated, spread across Mm -hmm. the country, and so, like, you know, I mean, yeah, if I do my ancestry DNA and I'm, like, oh, I got, Relatives in Cameroon or Nigeria or whatever, but that what does that what does that mean to me? You know, I'm I'm yeah. not, I don't refer to myself as African American because I tell people like there's there's really no like there's no Africa in me aside from blood. I have no idea mm. about any of that stuff. Like you know, black people have their own culture now, and it's so not fragmented, but it's like it's a puzzle, and you can see all the individual pieces. Yeah, it's pieced together, and it's, in a lot of ways, it's kind of all we have in that regard because we don't have like, we can go back and look to our to our ancestry, but it's, it is quite literally foreign to us uh, uh, against our will, so we have to hold on to what we have here, what we've created here. Yeah, um, this this sort of the idea of the the flower that grows amongst like on the sidewalk, grows up through the cracks despite everything, like you know. Mm. We weren't meant to thrive here, and
0: but damn it, we're going to, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I love that, wow. so before we end off, a couple of quickfire questions. Can you name me one of your favorite stories and not just within the horror genre?
1: Um that's a really unfair question to ask. That's I'm sorry, right.
0: not not no,
1: really. fine. <laughs> um, in the horror genre, i I finally got around to reading, and this uh, is sound terrible because I finally got around to the horror, to reading Clive Barker's Books of Blood, I mm-hmm. uh, really enjoyed uh, In the Hill of the Cities uh, because it kind of blends my love of horror and giant kaiju fights uh, in mm-hmm. the most messed up way possible. <laughs> um, outside of horror, this is giving to be kind of cheating. I really love the Elric of Melniboné series. The mm-hmm. reason it's kind of cheating is because they've been collected as novels, but they were mostly short stories mm-hmm. uh, in the, the Conan. So uh, you can throw a dart at any one of those, and they'll probably rank up there pretty
0: high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's on your reading list right now?
1: Oh, boy. I am currently reading a novel of axes and alchemy. It is written by an author that I met mm-hmm. at a convention that I was at. Uh, it is called the Mark of the Witchworm by Steve Van Sampson. and it is really friggin' good. I mean, like, because it has that sort of that that grit and that pacing of classic sword and sorcery, but with a more modern sensibility. And again, like, axes and alchemy, like you know, there's there's potions, there's magic, there's there's there are rifles of a sort, and it's but it's really engaging. I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, but nice. i mean with, with the anthology i have been i've been slacking on my tbr a little bit so i've been reading a bunch of stories from other people right now that i can't really talk about
0: <laughs> <laughs> of course yeah. Yeah. yeah unfortunately ross got me into 40k ah,
1: i'm sorry i am
0: on the space... third book and
1: okay,
0: i am cursing him
1: how are you enjoying your space nazis uh...
0: The space Nazi novels are really good and <laughs> for his 30th I got him a signed copy of um, Wolf King mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So uh, Ross did try and get me into the 40k series I have the first book of the Horus Heresy around here somewhere I am like maybe 50 pages in I think I would really like it if I could get past the space Nazis <laughs> <laughs> um...
0: Yeah,
1: one of those things like I mean I'm all for Grimdark, but I mean it's it's so on the nose for me, I guess. Mm-hmm. I can't like I, I think the concept is cool. I think a lot of the concepts in it are cool. Um and I may try some of the ones that focus more on the outer kind of, like not so much with the, the empire itself with the outer fringes, so the mm. like the lost mechanicum and stuff like that. Cause I that's that's like weird. Fiction, so I I that, but um yeah I just uh, yeah didn't stick for me
0: <laughs> oh no it stuck for me unfortunately because now I I didn't even know what I was getting myself into until I saw how many books they were and I was like oh shit yeah yeah. <laughs> what have I done to myself actually
1: Ross what did you do to me yeah what have, what have you done uh, I, I get the same thing about Warhammer I do about people who are like oh the the empire was right in Star Wars just like anyone. That's the point? Didn't you? you, you yeah, you can see what's going on there. But that's yeah. just that's just me. And I mean, I have no hatred for the for the forty k fans. I have no hatred for the series of it, itself. I just, I can't. I can't get into it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> Your favorite horror character?
1: Favorite horror character. I right now, the one that is just like screaming in my head right now actually is the protagonist or the deuteragonist uh from from nope Yeah uh, daniel Kaluuya's character it's only for the scene of the first time he sees the thing and he's just like yeah no no like i don't know that that stuck with me i don't you don't usually see that like you don't see that in horror movies played for like not full-on laughs like it was like a serious like you was like yeah no like no yeah. um That's the one that's sticking with with me right now. Um, You ask me these questions and I just draw a blank on things. I recently-ish read uh, Brian Keane's Dead Sea. And I cannot for the life of me remember the protagonist's name in that book. But I remember really enjoying him. Mm. I want to say I started with an L. (laughs) And that's all I I got for that. Um, I'm
0: writing down these names here because... I think it's about time I went on a bookshop, like just completely. <laughs> that,
1: is a, that, is a, uh, that is a dangerous thing spending, to decide.
0: Spending all my money on books, which I, I usually do anyway.
1: That's a dangerous thing to decide. Uh, it really is. Kind of horror, uh, the, the line between horror and war, uh, I really enjoyed Titus from S.A. Cosby's All the Sinners Bleed. That is mm. probably the book that I have finished the most recently yeah and he's such a great he's such a great character because he, he plays that line of being black in the south and also being the sheriff of this small town yeah and just seeing his inner conflict it was yeah it, that man can write and that was a hell of a character
0: kind of makes me think of the sheriff in um midnight mass
1: yeah oh yeah yes that's that is another really good one i mean Midnight, Matt. Uh, I can talk about Mike Flanagan for too long. We got two minutes, fifty seconds he, left.
0: Yeah, true. Okay. <laughs> so, what does frighten you?
1: People. At the end of the day, people scare me the most, and I don't mean that in like a. I'm afraid to go outside, but just what people can do, and are willing to do, to each other for the simplest and the stupidest reasons. There, the people are horrifying. I know that they experience, they can experience the same full spectrum of emotion that I can, barring, you know, obviously certain medical conditions and psychological conditions. But in general, human beings can experience exactly what I feel. And I can look at something and be absolutely horrified by it. But someone did that or can do that or has done that. I mean,
0: mm.
1: people like Dahmer or uh, Bundy or just stuff like, where it's <laughs> just like, you 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 did that and you were like on board with it like you liked that yeah you know so yeah people That's why i write about monsters mostly they're less frightening yeah they're
0: far less frightening (laughs) like there's this line from uh it's an obscure line from the movie paul where simon pegg and nick frost they're fighting in in the canyon and they suddenly look up at all the tourists and they go ah people yes it is one of my most quoted lines from a movie and people don't know where it's from. I don't I don't really care. It's ah, people. Uh, That's exactly how I feel on a day-to-day basis.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, anytime you turn on the news or whatever, it's like, oh, people happened.
0: Yeah, people happened. Final question. Fuck Mary Kill. <sighs> Gaiman, Poe, and Lovecraft. <laughs> Ooh. Okay.
1: Mary Gaiman. That one's easy. Mm-hmm. Um Got to fuck Lovecraft the, the 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 hate <laughs> aspect the hate fucking and Poe Poe is, po is a little weird for me so yeah I gotta I gotta kill Poe my uh well my writer friend is gonna hate me for that answer but uh, that's 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 what I'm gonna go with I'm gonna put that on my tombstone I guess
0: <laughs> <laughs> And and uh, with the time remaining um how can we support your work
1: uh I obviously please support the anthology when it comes out um
0: okay.
1: and I should have a book coming out next year ish sometime maybe a little bit later so uh when that comes out i would greatly appreciate the support on that as well
0: right thank you so much
1: thank you and And have uh, a good 10 p.m or no 11 p.m there so have a have
0: a good rest of your night thank you for listening i'd like to extend heartfelt gratitude to vaughn for the interview and to ross who made it possible Beyond the Bounds of Infinity has reached its Kickstarter goal and the call for submissions is now open with details on thebipolarfeminist.com. As always, thank you to my patrons for their continued support in making this podcast possible. Should you wish to support me, please subscribe to The Bipolar Feminist on Patreon or donate directly to Nikki Starfish and Coffee. See you in two weeks time after a short break in which I will be writing the first short story for publication on Patreon.